The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 150. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Voyager episode, Scorpion, Part part 2. This time it's personal. (laughs) (laughs) Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Yes, Scorpion, Part 2, Electric Boogaloo. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Sika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very good. You know that Electric Boogaloo thing is from an actual movie sequence for some, some dance movie which i never saw so so is this time it's personal from a uh, movie promotional campaign <laughs> that's right i think i remember that folks remember to like the secrets of star trek on our facebook page facebook.com slash starquest media retweet us on twitter where we're at sqpn and leave us comments we love to hear from you uh, also stick around to the end we've got some listener feedback on our recent episode where we talked about uh, star Qu- uh, quest <laughs> galaxy, galaxy quest, quest. yes yeah, so, sorry we quest talk about star quest every time yeah exactly. yes we do all right, so we're talking about Scorpion 2, which is the continuation of the of the story we talked about last time we talked about Voyager. And uh, this is the fourth season premiere episode of Voyager. Yeah. And the, what we usually talk about two-part episodes back-to-back, but this time we didn't. And I made that conscious choice because these are almost, I mean, these are two very different episodes. I mean, they're a continuation of a story. But the, the, you don't really lose anything by not talking about it back to back. Am, am I right? I think it's reasonable. Um, there's enough of a difference. And and besides, when these came out, we had to wait anyway for yeah. an extended period before the new season started. Right, right. And, and you know, as a bit of a reminder of, you know, what has happened in the interim is, uh, you know, in the first episode, there's an agreement between Voyager and the Borg, so that in exchange for developing a weapon against this new species that they've encountered, species 8472, the Borg will grant safe passage across their space to Voyager, and Voyager will give them this new weapon that they're developing, which the doctor uh, created as a treatment for mm-hmm. uh, Harry Kim, who'd been infected. But it could be used as a weapon. Yeah, Harry's been infected by Lomain uh, from <laughs> from species eight four seven two, and yes. and so the doctor has modified Borg nanoprobes to eat the Lomain for Harry, so he doesn't have to. Yep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, and uh, we're we're told that uh, Janeway will uh, work on board the cube and will liaise with a Borg individual drone. Uh, that who is called Seven of Nine, and of course we know the Borg will eventually betray them because they are the Scorpion riding across the river on the back of a frog. Right, that's the yep. the reference we're getting out of this so, mm-hmm. that old folktale. Now let's talk a bit about 
seven because this is her introduction. She's way less attractive than she will come to be. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. I was I was going to mention that. What there was, it's very interesting that they decide to introduce this character who is. Let's be honest. They put her in the in the you know form fitting leotard for the rest of the show. Uh, she's a bit of cheesecake. Honestly, I mean, she's there. Mm-hmm. Because oh yeah, she's they attractive. were upfront about that. Yeah, and yeah. Jerry Ryan was like, you know, if you if you've been introduced in this way, you don't want to look frumpy. You know, you <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> You want to look your best. And so she was on board with that. But in her initial appearance, Seven is like, wow, very unattractive and has this giant radio tube thing poking out of one of her (laughs) eyes. It's like he's going to, if she turns her head too quickly, she'll smack you in the face with it. Wow. I was reading some of her discussion of this and how when she first took this job and she was only cast after Scorpion Part 1 aired. I mean, she was Mm -hmm. very... Uh, short term before this this aired and she talked about a she didn't realize the like she'd be in prosthetics she was she she had seen what they were going to do later on she didn't realize her first episode was going to have all of this prosthetic and she found it very confining very claustrophobic as you Uh, do yeah yeah and and she said it added to her portrayal because she couldn't smile or make any facial expression or that that (laughs) the tube thing thing over her eye would pop off (laughs) i thought that was funny uh, but you know she's found it hard to breathe in the all of the latex and the all the appliances, and uh, she couldn't turn her head really. In fact, it pressed on her carotid artery, the the stuff on her mm. neck, and she almost I think she passed out at one point. So uh, kudos to Jerry Ryan, yeah, for, well, for for that. And well, we had talked about before that when they did the first episode of this two parter, Voyager was kind of at warning of you might not have a fifth season. Yeah, you know, fourth season might be it. You know, we I think we had mentioned that one of the plans might have been that the end of the fourth season was going to be they find the wormhole or the jump gate or whatever to get home, and that's going to be it. Yeah, and yeah, and that, so, so the introduction of Seven did a number of things on the show. Since mm-hmm. we we're talking about her introduction, mm-hmm. she replaced Cass, even though Cass is going to be here for another episode or so. They're transitioning Cass out. Yes. And that was a reasonable decision because they never figured out what to do with Cass. She was chronically underexploited as a character. And it's it just so stupid because if you've got a seven-year lifespan, that writes itself. Mm-hmm. Right. And and they did basically nothing with that. And it's like the same problem of vision they had when they did Enterprise. It's like, okay, we're going to, like, right before the founding of the Federation, okay, that writes itself. Tell us how the Federation happened. It's like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and so they keep missing these writing opportunities, but they blew it with Cass, and so that now they're writing Cass out of the show, which is reasonable. Mm-hmm. They're bringing in Seven of Nine, which is, who is a much more interesting character yeah. than Cass was. Mm-hmm. Seven of Nine basically revives the show and gets it you know, another three seasons beyond the fourth. And also, it royally hacks off Kate Mulgrew because <laughs> Kate, it did. Kate Mulgrew is not proud of this today, but you know she viewed herself as like I'm the female lead of the show. Mm. I'm the first female Starfleet captain, and others in the cast would say she had kind of a queen bee thing mm. going on. And then Jerry Ryan comes in as this newcomer, and suddenly she's the one that all the magazines are interviewing and putting on their covers and taking pictures of. And she's getting all of the 
FaceTime in the stories as they flesh out the Seven of Nine character and right. build her up and make her a major presence on the show. And and Kate Mulgrew resented that, and it really came across behind scenes. I forget if she even tried to get Jerry Ryan fired, but mm. she definitely really made it very, very, very unpleasant for mm. Jerry Ryan behind the scenes. Mm. They have since patched it up. It's been enough years now. I mean, it's almost like, what, 20 years or more? More than 20 years now. More yeah. than 20 years. Yeah. And so they've patched it up, and but like for a long time they wouldn't speak and things like that. And I'm I'm really glad they patched it up. I understand both of their perspectives on it, mm-hmm. although, frankly, Kate Mulgrew behaved unprofessionally for a while. Yeah. 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 That did... That, that, Rings rings true to what I've heard as well. Yeah. That, so yeah, um, and it would be tough to, you know, you've formed this bond among this crew, this cast, and you've been told, you know, you guys aren't cutting it, and we need some more sex appeal, and so we're putting this new character in to to really, you know, who will get all the attention. And I could I could imagine that would mm-hmm. be kind of tough, and particularly for a series lead because yeah. the, the series lead doesn't just play a role in front of the cameras. Typically, the series lead plays a big role behind the cameras in either helping the cast cohere or not. Mm -hmm. And often the series lead can get very protective because they have more authority, morally speaking, than, I mean, they have more Mm -hmm. influence behind the scenes because they're the hardest to replace. Right. And so they, they can get their way on issues behind the scenes, and that sometimes leads to conflict. It did in the original series with Bill Shatner. He had to deal with Spock, with Leonard Nimoy as the breakout character, and that led to tension between Mm -hmm. the two of them on set. In fact, there's a a memo in one of the History of Star Trek books that I've got where Gene Roddenberry basically shut down filming uh, in a particular episode because of how bad things had gotten between Shatner and Nimoy and even a little bit with DeForest Kelly. Mm-hmm. And basically he read them the riot act in this memo and said, and said, here's what you're doing wrong. I will not tolerate this prima donna stuff. And, and he detailed what both Shatner and Nimoy were doing. That was, was bad. And then he turned to DeForest Kelly and says, and lest you think you're getting off scot-free, <laughs> here's what's <laughs> happening with you. And basically, we're going to have none of this right. going forward. Mm. And eventually, that cast, you know, gelled again. But the the lead can feel threatened and can be demanding. And it's a human temptation mm-hmm. in that role. Mm. Well, and, and kind of the opposite of this, you hear stories of the next generation, the role that Patrick Stewart played with the other crew other members of the crew, much different than the, the prima donna yeah. William right. Shatner. Well, once they loosened him up, he, he yeah. I don't guess he was ever a prima donna, but initially he was, he was too stiff, and he would, like, scold the other cast members for cutting up on set, and it's yeah. like, we're here to be professional actors. And if, <laughs> but then they got him loosened up. Yeah. Well, there's also <laughs> the story that the first season, he didn't even unpack his bags from the hotel room, I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was with this, this silly sci-fi thing. Uh, another series that had lead actor problems was uh, the Babylon 5 spinoff Crusade, mm-hmm. where the guy, oh, and I'm blanking on his name, 
he's the guy who was the boss from Office Space. Uh, oh, I, oh, hi, yeah, how yeah, you yeah, doing? Yeah. 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 You, you get those you two know, PC reports. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And he, he'll ask you how you're doing and not even give you a chance to reply. Just, hi, how you doing? Yeah, I was wondering about those TPS reports. Yep. Yeah. And they cast him as, as the lead character, as the captain in Crusade. And he apparently had no presence behind the scenes. He mm. was not the cheerleader that Bruce Boxleitner had been sure. for the cast. He would right. just go into his trailer and vanish after his scenes. And oh, wow. the other cast members felt that. Gary Cole. Gary Cole, yeah. Yep. Whereas, which is also why they were going to replace him at the end of the first season if they had, a, if they had gotten a full first season. Right. Whereas Scott Bakula, he was a total cheerleader, and not just for the cast, but for everybody behind the scenes. He would like stay and help the the crew <laughs> who was assigned to pack up the props do their jobs. Yeah. Wow. I've heard that about Scott Bakula, that he's like the nicest guy, like him and uh, Keanu Reeves, the nicest people in Hollywood. Yeah. I've heard that. So speaking of Seven, the, it's interesting the character is she's a bit of a halfway point between the Borg Queen, who was just in First Contact, which had just come out, mm-hmm. and and a drone. Like, she's she's not... A, she says I, and she has an individuality, which well, makes her a lot like the point, Queen. at she's saying we. There was a, just, I noticed the few times in that first scene she says I. I have been yeah, selected oh. to interface. So there's this interesting we and I thing going on. So there's more uh, individuality. like... I would think that's like data using contractions. That's just an actor slip or a writer slip. See, I didn't get the feel of that because they, they brought up Locutus as the you know spokesman. Yeah, right. That when Picard became Locutus, he was a spokesman for the board. Right. And that was a specific thing where it's, you know, I as in this drone have been picked. Not So I, I right. didn't see it as a slip. I saw it as an actual intentional choice that just those few times where she was referring to herself as the, the spokes drone. Right. used i but then from then on it's we are bore we you know which by the way i like that the one time it's like uh jane we asked a question that the answer is yes and just we are borg that's the answer <laughs> yes i am groot <laughs> yeah. I, I liked it when when seven of nine has classified information about the you know the weaponry that voyager has available and two yes. says, how did you get this information and seven of nine is like we are borg i.e We've assimilated someone with that knowledge. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, they do find uh, it, that's that's the moment where she says there are 32 photon torpedoes on Voyager. And uh, that's in the classic videos, yeah. the supercut of all yep. the, the the torpedoes that Voyager apparently has. Um, so that, she's that, a halfway... never made, that never made much sense to me because these people yeah. have replicators. And mm-hmm. it's like, right. what is it that's magical about photon torpedoes that you can't replicate them? At least the casings and all the electronics. Yeah, Never mind you them. just need to put antimatter. I mean, really, what a photon torpedo is, is it's a little antimatter bomb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, if you, you obviously don't have a problem getting antimatter. So all you got to do is get a little bit of matter. That's easy. Yep. Get a little bit of <laughs> antimatter. That's easy for you. Put yep. them in a magnetic bottle, put them in a casing, fire them off, and, and turn off the magnetic bottle. Boom. Yep. Yes. Photon torpedo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. The shuttles are a little more problematic, but yeah. It's, well, yeah. They, they obviously they've got rep- shuttle replicators, so that's not a problem. Right, I, yeah. I, I do, well, do you have? Do you have? Speaking of of uh, getting antimatter, I, I at the beginning of the episode, they they you know, uh, G, uh, not Janeway, but Chakotay wanted to get uh, the Borg to turn off the tractor beam. You know, we can keep up you know speed without a leash, 
And it's like, aren't you always complaining about lack of power? Let the Borg pay for the gas <laughs> bill right now. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, so the thing is interesting about this is that at at one point they wanted they, there was some thought about having the Borg Queen show up in this story, but then they decided against it because if the if the viewers hadn't watched First Contact, they wouldn't understand and they'd have to explain. And they just wanted to have just seven be seven and the the, the well, this female yeah born. and that makes sense because the, the i mean the voyager people are not going to know about the events from first contact so the, the right, voyager right. people will not know there is a borg queen at this point right and so they need to explain it not just for viewers but for the characters and it would then totally overshadow seven mm-hmm. yes exactly uh also interesting is that jerry ryan says that she played seven like a prussian general <laughs> She just imagined mm-hmm. a Prussian general with a military bearing and strength, which, as I watched it, I said, yeah, that's, that's actually pretty good. Yeah, it fit. Um, you know, when they in the scene where they are about to introduce Seven, so Janeway is going to stay on the cube to help them develop the weapon, and Tuvok has come over as well. And mm-hmm. they've by this point, they've cured Harry of low main poisoning. Yes. <laughs> and... So they're about to start work on a on a delivery system for the nanoprobes. And at this point, the drones seize Janeway and Tuvok and force them to the ground and are about to put a put a thing in their neck so that they mm-hmm. can be part of the collective consciousness. And they say it's just temporary. But there are a couple of things I found interesting about this. One of them is... Uh, Tuvok and Janeway make the point they think better if they have their individuality, mm-hmm. and also we can't trust you to take these things out when we're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Janeway says, you can choose a representative, like you've done it before with Locutus of Borg, pick a single mm-hmm. drone that we can interface with, because that's the Borg's justification for wanting to to put alien implants in them, is right. that they, they'll communicate faster. And... Having a representative really doesn't help with that problem much, but okay, it gets seven of nine into the show. <laughs> yeah. Because you were talking to their voice interface just fine mm-hmm. before this. You didn't need a face to talk to. But Janeway says, choose a representative or the deal's off. And I'm like, really? Are you <laughs> in a position to cancel the deal at this point? Because if they implant you and you're part of the collective, then you're going to be happy to tell Chakotay everything is going just fine, and this is mm-hmm. all part of the plan. How are you're you're betting that Chakotay will because he's that's where the leverage is is over on Voyager. They've got the reprogrammed nanoprobes. The the Borg do not have those. Yeah, and so you're betting that Chakotay will cancel the deal if they implant you. And I don't know how. I don't know about that because he's been will. I mean, when she first showed up on his screen, he didn't have any proof that she hadn't been assimilated. This could mm-hmm. be a Janeway puppet, and Although, he's willing to go along anyway. Have we ever seen a drone who look who who could ape their being their free person? Well, but see, the thing is, Janeway is almost drone like anyway <laughs> in her delivery. <laughs> Well, there's that. Uh, yes, yes. So you know, if he's if if we've got angry Janeway on the screen, how do you know she's not a drone? You look I mean, a little pale, Captain. I'm just not getting enough sun. Yeah. Uh, I'm just not getting enough sun, Mister Chicote. Proceed with the plan. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the and 
the way that they're keeping the the nanoprobes from the 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 Borg is as a reminder the doctor is keeping all data about the modified nanoprobes inside his hollow matrix yep. uh, which would be inaccessible apparently it, it's it's on his hard drive which of course you know you can only have one copy of anything cuz starfleet computers are notoriously inefficient for making copies of things exactly <laughs> it's firewalled <laughs> Uh, well, they're doing better than they are with data, and he just shares. He has no firewall. He shares data freely with anything he interfaces with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They've apparently learned something in the past couple of years. Uh, so the uh, they, they get into this discussion with da- uh, Seven and the and the captain about the scope of the Borg weapon versus a Voyager created weapon. Janeway wants nano to, uh, probes in torpedoes, which is a controlled uh, weapon. The Borg want a massive WMD that apparently, they, she says, could disperse probes over five light years, which I'm thinking that would take a while. It would take five yeah. years minimum, it would, <laughs> yeah. or maybe depending on how fast the that's it, and that's at light speed. If it's a normal yes. explosion, okay, in forty thousand years, this will be a problem for someone <laughs> five light years away, right? <laughs> but Janeway's argument against this is you'd be endangering innocent worlds. And I'm going, really? You've established we're in the middle of vast Borg space with thousands of worlds <laughs> that are all Borg. If, right. if they want to do a little self-damage, mm-hmm. really? Well, and Janeway's uh, other objection is that it's you know deterrence versus genocide. Are we going to deter 8472, or are we just out to wipe them from existence? Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of becomes the the whole idea of this episode is this 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 tension between deterrence and genocide so and and spoiler you know 8472 didn't start the fight they're just gonna finish it yes right yeah which they introduce i mean they are evil um Mm -hmm. xenophobes that want to kill everything that's not them but Mm -hmm. they didn't know about us until the borg started this and and they they play this up like the borg are at fault Mm mm-hmm for going right. at for starting this conflict with eight four seven two, and I'm going the Borg and eight four seven two are both programmed at a fundamental level to behave in certain ways. Right, they're not subject to moral calculus in this way. You can't blame the Borg for trying to assimilate another alien race. I mean, okay, they they they, they figured out hey, there could be this alien race in a parallel universe. Let's go after them. What would you expect the Borg to do? Yeah. They're the they're, scorpion. They're, they're, I mean, yeah. It's their nature. This, it, this is just what they do. They're like a force of nature. They got a bad virus early on in their AI technological development, and they're slaves to it now. You can't really blame them. And the right. same thing with 8472. They're the only thing in their universe, and so they're ex- which is ridiculous. And so they're extreme xenophobes, and they want to kill anything else. They're programmed this way somehow evolutionarily. Mm-hmm. They're not really moral agents. Exterminate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the A four seven two they they find Voyager and the Borg cube through a telepathic link with Kess. This is where starting to get this idea that Kess is is more. Uh, powerful telepathically than even Tuvok, because Tuvok, or or maybe Tuvok just has better shield, mental shields, mm-hmm. I guess. But they link with Kess, and she starts to see manifestations of them in her environment, and this is how they track them down. 
And the Borg end up having to sacrifice the cube that Voyager's traveling with to destroy the bio ship that is attacking them and save Voyager. And then every, a I, bunch of I, Borg have to come over to Voyager. And I really like how this works because they're, they're traveling, they're fleeing mm-hmm. at warp speed. They're fleeing from the bio ship. And the cube is like rotating on its vertical axis and firing from each of its facets at yeah. the, the bio ship. And I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but it looks cool. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and then they use the cube itself as a bludgeon to smash the bio ship, and that looks cool. And I like how the Borg are tactically sacrificing an entire cube in order to protect Voyager. That's that's ironic and nicely ironic. Mm-hmm. The scale of the Borg is kind of fascinating to me. Like the the size of the Borg entity, the the whole. What's the word? Uh, collective? Collective, thank you. Is, yeah. you know, we, we they talk about, you know, billions of drones and thousands of cubes or tens of thousands of cubes. And it's kind of like, you know, you think about it, the way, the, uh, the implacability of the Borg, yeah, they would be massive. And then the question is, is if they can travel as as quickly as they can across the galaxy, why haven't they assimilated the entire galaxy? Because it would be... Uh, exponential increase, wouldn't it? I right. Mean- this is part of the Fermi problem, uh, the Fermi paradox, because any technologically advanced civilization that can get out of its own solar system could colonize the galaxy in under a million years. Right. So and- why hasn't it happened already, or has it? <laughs> mm, well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have so many human-looking uh, aliens in Star Trek. Yeah. So when they get when the this happens, this event. Janeway and Tuvok are saved, but they're injured and, and unconscious, or at least Janeway's still unconscious. I think Tuvok makes a quicker recovery. And that mm-hmm. leaves Chakotay in command. And then we have this interesting conflict that arises. It's a sort of command conflict. Janeway left clear instructions to continue with the alliance no matter what, because it's, it's important that we get across Borg space, and this is the way to do it. But Chakotay says... I think she's wrong. I think the Borg are going to betray us. I think our best bet is to get out of the way. I didn't I didn't think they set this up right, at mm-hmm. least when I watched it, because I mean Janeway is is okay, she's giving Chakotay an order. I can buy that. It it really is more counsel though. Mm-hmm. Because if if you are about to go unconscious and you're in a situation like this, you can tell your first officer, here's what I want you to do, but you can't make him like super secret double pinky swear that he's not (laughs) going to deviate from that because exigent circumstances may happen that force a change in plans. Right. And that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. He, He did continue with the alliance until the Borg, who were on board Voyager, tried to take control. And so he and he warned them if you do this I'm going to depressurize that level and they did it anyway and he depressurized the level. What was he supposed to do? They right. weren't open to talking. He'd already exhausted his options talking to them. It right. was either let them take over or jettison them into space. Mm-hmm. So I don't think this hand-wringing once Janeway is conscious again about Oh, you disobeyed my orders. I'm so unhappy. Blah blah blah. And yes, I felt I had to disobey your orders. Blah blah blah. No, this was clearly <laughs> exigent circumstances. He tried to make it work. He didn't. He sublimated his own preferences and tried to make it work. And it was only when it didn't work 
that he did the absolutely reasonable thing. Janeway ought to give him a little gold star on his record. <laughs> well, and, and she specifically said, you know, I'm going over and you're in command. You right. know, mm-hmm. you're in charge. At that point, yeah. yes, he should follow her orders the best of his ability out of, you know, respect for her and, and all that. But at some point, he needs to make the orders and not worry about it, especially when your captain is unconscious with her brain scrambled or whatever, whatever, neural whatever happened to her. Yes. And who knows if she'll ever recover. And so right. how long should he continue to follow her last commands given changing circumstances? I agree. I think this was, uh, in fact, it's, I read that it, the director really wanted to play up this tension between Chakotay, the di- between the disabled commander and the second command who ha- had to take command. And I get that's an interesting uh, dramatic uh, moment. I think it's a dramatic uh, po- uh, beat to play up. But you're right. It, I don't think it worked out as well as they'd hoped uh, because yeah. it, it didn't have the good basis. But uh, on the on the other hand, I liked how in the initial conversation, Janeway has this like big red scar on her face from her injuries mm-hmm. when they're yeah. putting her into the coma, and then when later they show her in the coma, the scar is no longer there because, of course, they have dermal regenerators fix yeah. the superficial damage while the <laughs> while she's in her coma. Yes, exactly. Yes. I did like another element too, where at one point where Chakotay confronts Seven, she basically says, you know, it's your un- your individuality will be your undoing because of your internal conflicts. I, I like that. That's that's a, a typical Borg way of looking at uh, regular people. Is you know, your lack of unity is you, is the reason why we're superior to you. And then uh, later on, Chakotay realizes that that conflict between him and Janeway is undermining them. But they use that that different points of view as actually a strength as opposed to the weakness. And that's how they come up with Operation Scorpion, whereas while Janeway appears to be cooperating with the Borg as as before, uh, the Chakotay is operating on the assumption that the Borg are going to betray them as his point of view mm-hmm. is and moves forward on that plan to under to, you know, to uh, circumvent that that betrayal. Uh, so I did like that aspect of it. Right. I was irritated, though, where, where at one point, you know, they're Chakotay and, Chakotay and Janeway are arguing, and Janeway says, well, we need to stop fighting each other. And I immediately wrote down, then take charge instead of fighting. You're <laughs> right, the captain. You're the, boss. <laughs> you're the captain. You don't argue with the first officer. If the yes. first officer disagrees with you, you say, you've got a choice. Do what I say or go to the brig. Take your pick. Right. Yeah, at one point you have to be the the captain and and say I've made my decision. Uh, but the, it's interesting this resolution, which is, is uh, the 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 plan is to distract Seven via neural link because Chakotay, remember in in a, in a third a third season episode had a neural link put in, so he's mm-hmm. used to having one of these temporary neural links, and so he yeah. uses that to distract we, we, her. We should also point out that. At one point, they're discussing, and I forget the exact context, but they're talking about um, putting the Borg on a moon. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, stranding them. And, and yeah. stranding them and letting the collective come pick them up. And, and they say that the moon has an oxygen-argon atmosphere, and that could actually work. That could be survivable, because argon mm-hmm. is a noble gas, which means it doesn't interact with other things. So mm-hmm. they would be able to extract the oxygen. It wouldn't be poisonous yep. for them. So that was kind of nice. But the base, but basically drop the Borg on an uninhabited planet and run is mm-hmm. a viable strategy here. 
But then the Borg try to take over uh, Voyager, and they want to force them into fluidic space, which is where 8472 lives. And Chakotay depressurizes the deck like he said he was going to. And so all of the Borg except Seven slide out into space. So that's the reason Mm -hmm. she's on the ship after this, and none of the other Borg who came with her are. And this one is actually, as far as depressurizations go, this one's pretty good because you've got the air of an entire deck Mm -hmm. to evacuate out of one slot, and that will push lots of people out. Why Seven is the only one to grab something before she gets pushed out, I don't know. (laughs) But it's a sort of reasonable paint-by-numbers way of getting rid of all the other Borgs so we can have Seven as a regular character. Yeah, well, and I thought it was interesting. Like they were going to transport them to the planet surface, but yeah. they can't transport them into space. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> There's a little bit of a, a plot hole there. Yeah, but the idea was is that they were going to transport them to the moon surface with the nanoprobe information. Yeah, and then abandon them there. Uh, but that's when the uh, the the Borg Collective says, "Nope, uh, things are getting hairy. We need to take control of the ship." And that's that's they they forced the situation. But yeah, then they're forced into the fluidic space to, to kind of to force Voyager. They're, they're trying to force Voyager to act on their behalf. And, yeah. and then they, they encounter the 8472. They get back just in time. And then they're chased by this. And they end up having to, to launch one of these WMD-type uh, torpedoes anyway, although maybe mm-hmm. not quite as destructive. Uh, nowhere nowhere near as destructive. This was this was more of a bunker buster equivalent, yeah. where it does a lot of damage or large uh, field of 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 uh, area of effect. That's the word. Large area right. of effect. So it takes out multiple ships at one time. One of the things I found interesting so is the concept of fluidic space because they mm-hmm. they go into fluidic space and it's filled with fluid. Mm-hmm. So this is like a liquid at some temperature that allows it to remain in a liquid state. And that actually works scientifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because, I mean, we have, our in our universe, space is not empty. It's, it's only mostly empty. Right. <laughs> but there's like a, an atom of hydrogen for every cubic meter or something like that on average. And at one point when the universe was much smaller, you would have had the universe filled with the equivalent of something like a fluid, assuming it was cool enough for for the particles to congeal into the atoms and molecules needed to make the fluid. And our universe has also gone through massive temperature fluctuations. There, So we all know about the Big Bang. Our whole universe was in a hot, hot dense state. But then, <laughs> when it expanded, the temperature started going down. And currently, it's like, I don't know what, uh, three degrees Kelvin or something like that. And, or maybe it's three degrees Fahrenheit above absolute zero. But, but that means it passed through all those intermediate ranges. So there was a time when the universe's average temperature was a balmy 70 degrees. A nice hot bath. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so you could have in another universe a conjunction where you had things that were cool enough to allow the universe to be filled with fluid. Hmm. And that makes sense. And in such a state, 
perhaps there might be no stars or planets, like they say there are none in mm-hmm. fluidic space. My question is, how on earth do you have anything remotely humanoid evolve in that situation? Right. Because the, the species 8472 is clearly evolved to function in a planetary environment. Mm-hmm. They have feet and and they have a uh, even though they have a third leg, they have a basically bipedal structure with a head at the top and feet at the bottom and arms in the middle to manipulate and all of that screams I evolved in a gravitational field. And their so, ships have in, uh, uh, atmospheric environments inside them. Yeah. yeah, and they and they can clearly live in atmospheric environments. Yeah, so the idea there that you can have an eight four seven two and you can have a fluidic space with no stars or planets, both of those ideas are fine on their own, but you put them together and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah, I think someone just thought fluidic space was a cool idea and didn't think it yeah. through. <laughs> so, sounds cool, and let's get the get out the uh, submarine special effects where the ships make wakes as they go through the space. You know. Right, right. So I have a like a as as we get to the end of the the episode, the uh, I know why they try to sever seven from the Norlink from a production point of view because we want to keep this character around and make her an interesting part of the crew. Why, within a plot point of view, do they bother trying to sever seven's link to the collective and not just make her unconscious and drop her off somewhere? What 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 is she's internally? Human. She, yeah. She's okay. human. That's Janeway's motivation is, um, or I mean, and broadly speaking, the rest of the crew, you see a human who's been assimilated, you can help them, you do help them. Mm. Right. Although the other drones get spaced, but she's well, seven. Yeah, she's human. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, none of the other drones were... Individualized? W- no. It, it, none of the other, I mean, it was just random that okay. they got jettisoned out. If, let's say, some of those drones were Vulcans and mm-hmm. they didn't get jettisoned out, they managed to hang on to something the way Seven did, they would have tried to help them, too. That's true. Okay. Yeah, because they've done it before in other, in, you know, in, uh, what's the, the drone the, that Hugh. showed up in? Hugh. Yes. I kept want to say Henry. That is not right. Mm-hmm. Hugh and others drones. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Okay. So we end the episode, uh, unless there's more to the, uh, I mean, they, they basically destroy the, Eight four seven two fleet, and they get away. And the alliance has their been way. terminated, yep. <laughs> right? And they're uh, getting out of Borg space, maximum warp, and etc. And they end the episode with Janeway doing a uh, a captain's log from the holographic Da Vinci's workshop uh, with quill and paper. I'm mm-hmm. assuming that the com- the the computer will translate that into a computerized form for her <laughs> just, as she does it. it. It just think of it as 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 writing on an iPad with a stylus and yeah. you're just inside the iPad in this case. I mean, I kind of like that as a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a conceit the, the idea of, you know, today I want to do my my uh captain's log in Da Vinci's workshop with a quill and pa- piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Next week I'm going to do it on the deck of a sailing ship from the 19th century. <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. why not? Um but uh, yeah, it, there's a, a conversation between Chakotay and Janeway where they kind of clear things up between each other somewhat and talk about keeping Seven on board and, uh, and that uh, see, she was assimilated at a young age and Chakotay's a little dubious about keeping her around. And Janeway gets this thing like, nope, we're, this is where the Janeway project begins. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. The Janeway's project to save Seven. Uh, and that's really going to carry us through the rest of the the series and 
gives us the seven of nine that we have in Picard, which is, yep. I think she becomes a fascinating character, frankly, by mm-hmm. this Picard time. Yeah. So Even by about the sixth or seventh season of, of Voyager, she really becomes more human and very interesting as a character. Yes. Uh, especially when she uh, fights with the rock yeah. in the uh, Sunkatsu. So what do you think about the ending of this episode and, or any other notes you have about this, this, this episode and, the, and maybe even the previous one? It, it's, it is clear that the, the ending is just, so now we've got this new character we bring on. And, you know, and, and one thing they kind of, they tip their hands very early. Cause when you look at the opening credits, it's no, uh, Jennifer Leon is no longer dressed as a regular star yeah. of the show. She's in the special guest star episode where yeah. Jerry Ryan is there, you know, so they didn't, I mean, you understand they have to do that contractually and all this other, you know, reasons why they do it. But it, it's interesting that they kind of tip that no, Kess is going away very soon and yeah. Seven of Nine is here to stay. Um, right. So there's really no surprise there. But um, as far as other other notes, of course, Starfleet security protocols suck as usual because <laughs> yeah. uh, Seven of Nine very easily bypasses the deflector grid. And they know that Kess is compromised. So why are they telling all these secrets like we've got our mega torpedo in the back of the ship and oh what a shock 8472 <laughs> just shot the back of the ship. Right. Yeah, I know. I I I thought once we realized that Kess was compromised, it's like, okay, turn this to your advantage. Start mm-hmm. feeding Kess tactical disinformation. Right. Right. That would have been more logical. All right. Anything else, Father Corey? That's it. Uh, Jimmy, anything nope. left? Nope. All right, so that's how we end things here with the, uh, I'll, I'll just finish writing out this episode with the uh, quill and parchment, you just have to imagine it. No, I'm just kidding. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Ruth K., Joseph F., Pauline H., Michael K., and Leslie H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. Now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron, thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter. So when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including this one, which makes your gift go even further. And we're very, very, very close to our goal of $2,000 in new monthly pledges, which will make a lot of interesting things we've got in the planning stages possible. So please, won't you help us get over that line? Get right past that line. We're so close. If only you, yes, you would help us now. <laughs> Go to sqpn.com slash give today. All right, let's do our uh, some listener feedback from our recent episode on Galaxy Quest, where we talked about Galaxy Quest as perhaps the best Star Trek movie, and we got some agreement on that. And we had a lot of great feedback. A lot of people enjoyed our discussion. Uh, our first feedback comes from Randy Ladisky, who sent an email, said, uh, so Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World made me become an SQPN patron, but Secrets of Star Trek is quickly becoming my favorite SQPN show. Uh, no offense, Jimmy. Uh, that's what I said. Uh, especially, yeah. <laughs> I especially loved your most recent episode about Galaxy Quest. Listening to the joy and exuberance that this movie gave you guys was as fun as the movie itself and has inspired me to rewatch it since it's been a while. Keep up the great content, and thanks to Father Corey for having a great, thicker Midwestern accent than me, a Michigander. God bless you guys. Ufta Yashur, you betcha, don't you know? Uh, I am I'm priest in Montana, but I was born in northeastern North Dakota, and many of my relatives do sound like the movie Fargo, don't you know? <laughs> really good, really good. Excellent. 
So uh, thank you, Randy. Yeah, we uh, we're so glad that you enjoyed our discussion of that. And um, I we've heard I heard from a number of people who had never watched our Galaxy Quest. I'm gonna keep doing that Galaxy <laughs> Quest, and who are decided that based on our discussion, they they now have to go watch it. So well, definitely, once you've uh, watched it, if you haven't watched before, let us know what you think. Uh, and then we had another piece of feedback from a real Catholic dad on Twitter who said, uh, "I actually think Mel Gibson could have been a good good in that role, not nearly as good as Tim Allen." Because Mel was coming off of four Lethal Weapon movies, which were action comedies, where he was a deeply troubled character, and you know Mel has range. And I think I think putting myself in the mindset of around the year two thousand and thinking of Mel Gibson, yeah, uh, you know mm-hmm. Mel since then has had you know some uh, different things going on and <laughs> some not so good things and some good things uh, that changes your mindset about him. But yeah, I think he could that would have been an interesting choice. I do think Tim Allen was better though. What do you guys think? Agree. <laughs> I haven't seen the Lethal Weapon movies, so I don't have an opinion. <laughs> okay. He, he's uh, definitely yeah. much more manic in the Lethal Weapon movies. So Yeah. But that's it, the he, he could have the role where he could play. And he, he's shown that he can play serious roles yeah. since then. You know, even, even Mad Max was a very serious role. Right. Crazy, but serious. You know, so it, it, he does definitely have the, the, the chops to do both comedy and serious and probably could do both in the same yeah. movie pretty easily. I, it would be interesting to see him in a role like that. Yeah. All right. That's it for our feedback. And thank you both for sending that in. We really do appreciate uh, hearing from our listeners. So, uh, so, and because we do appreciate hearing from our listeners, we want to hear from you on Scorpion Part 2, this Voyager episode, Part 1 even. What do you think of the addition of Seven to the cast and all those sorts of things? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Enterprise episode, Sleeping Dogs. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thanks, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, you still have a tendril up your nose, Harry. That was such a cruel joke to play on him. <laughs>